This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. And we're back to a regular style episode of You Have Permission. I appreciate everybody who listened to all four parts of that End Times Anxiety series. That stuff was a long time in the works. Um, as I mentioned, those interviews took place back in August. So that's like almost really six months, pretty much five months of work on, on that stuff. And uh, really rewarding for me. Very excited to have some direction toward my dissertation and hope it was helpful for you guys. So now that we are in February here, firmly in February, this is the first of five episodes that are going to be releasing every other week for about 10 weeks. The reason for this is that I've got a baby coming. My wife is due six days from today. Uh, I'm recording this actually back in January, but I mean six days from this February release date uh, of the 10th. And I don't know when he's coming. 
Uh, but I want to give myself a little buffer. So I'm preloading. I did a bunch of extra interviews in December and early January to be ready for this. And I am like pre-packaging these to come out every two weeks instead of every week. And then after about 10 weeks there, we'll get back to weekly for the show. I just need to have a, a little bit of buffer there. A little self-care to spend some time with my new little buddy and my uh, recovering wife and be helpful to her. One thing I can't pause is grad school, so I am effectively pausing the podcast on my own end. You guys will still get episodes every other week and uh, pausing my day job work with music composition as well to just spend time with my family. Uh, But I still have to do grad school, so I need to create this space. Thank you for understanding. Anyway, enough about this uh, announcement. Today's episode's fun. I got to do it with my friend Matt. He is a philosophy professor at Seattle Pacific University here in Seattle, and uh, it's about sort of the five or so biggest questions that come up with undergraduates at this Christian university. He's going to explain more about that in the introduction, so I don't need to say much here other than enjoy the episode. So this is a fun episode, Matt, because you and I are genuinely in real life friends. Mm-hmm. And we have been trying to come up with uh, a good excuse to have you on the show for a while. Uh, you have been super busy yeah. as uh, as Christian philosopher professors tend to be these mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. in a uh, difficult world for liberal arts education. <laughs> but we were texting and this, this topic kind of came out naturally that I'm so pumped about. It's basically like the five biggest questions that students have in their basically intro to philosophy or basically just like classes they take with you mm-hmm. around thinking seriously about Christianity. So um, to set this up, let's get a little bit more about you and the school. I didn't major in philosophy in college and I started, I was a Christian from a fairly evangelical kind of background and family. And I went to seminary at Fuller, did a degree there and began to realize I was much more interested in a scholarly academic side, wanted to teach if I could some in some higher ed level and just kept going to school basically and realized uh, doing a second degree at Yale Divinity School and was like, well, I'm really actually interested in philosophical issues here, not just sort of pure theology issues. So I did a bunch of that first and now then I did a PhD in philosophy and was really interested in epistemology became interested also in philosophy of language, still do a lot of philosophy of religion and philosophical theology in my, both my teaching and my, my writing and my reading. So um, that's, that's where I'm coming from. You also just gave us a nice working definition of an academic, someone who just keeps going to school. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? Even when we're working our jobs, it's kind of like what we're doing. Exactly. <laughs> so, and then uh, we're at Seattle Pacific University recording on campus here. This is where you work. Mm-hmm. I would describe it as kind of theologically centrist in terms of American Christian universities. So if you've got Liberty and Bob Jones and whatever all the way on the right, and then you've got basically the Ivy League seminaries and... Um, I don't know, all the way on the left, like a Harvard Divinity and mm-hmm. uh, Union and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, we're sort of in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Although we, I mean, in some ways we're in the middle and for from some people's perspectives, we will look far more right because we still have the kind of language of evangelical in our, yeah. what we're about. Sort of doesn't fit a lot of the ways in which we are 
not like so many other evangelical schools. Um, Most of the evangelical schools in the country, for example, have very detailed statement of faith. And most of them don't allow students who don't aren't Christians or aren't religious to be students. So in other ways, we're a lot more like a lot of the Catholic and Jesuit universities um, where students can be anything. The faculty, though, are all some some version of Christian, some of them a little more conservative and really owning the evangelical label. Others, you know, we have Catholics, we have yeah. Greek Orthodox on our faculty, you know, so it's a, it's a, in that way, it's a very big tent sort of broad yeah. tradition place. Yeah. And, and what's important for this conversation is you don't have to be a Christian to go here as a student. Mm-hmm. Don't have to have a statement of faith or whatever the conduct students, statement. Yeah. yeah. So that's going to make this conversation more interesting because <clears throat> you've basically got like all five of the questions that we're going through. Yeah. The way that I tend to think of those questions as they're being phrased by the more conservative kids oftentimes. Yeah. But then there's also the way of phrasing them of like, I'm a non-religious student at this Christian school that's also known for a good education and my parents are paying to send me here or whatever. Yeah. And so how would God send anyone to hell? Right. Like you could you could phrase it either direction, the same question, right? Right. So that is going to we should we should pick up on that. Like I want to know for each of these questions how the conservative religious students and the non-religious students uh, variously interact with them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just something to keep in mind. Um, I'm going to just say the five questions here, mm-hmm. and then we're just going to give ourselves like 15 to 20 minutes on each one and get, you know, obviously we're not going to solve them, right. but we're going to hear a bit about what's motivating these questions and how you tend to interact with students on each of them. So the first one is how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Then why is there so much religious diversity if one religion is true or mostly true or most true? Third is, if there's a loving God, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? The problem of evil. Fourth is, why isn't there stronger evidence for God's existence? And fifth is, what are the right ways to interpret the Bible? Uh, Obviously, that one (laughs) is very wide ranging, but Mm -hmm. um, it'll be really cool and interesting, I think, to get your perspective as a philosophy professor on on these uh, these interactions with students. So let's start with the first one. Okay. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? My mm-hmm. first question is just like, how? I'd like to know how and when each of these comes up. So mm-hmm. when do you start hearing this from students? Most of these questions emerge in a course that all, all of our four-year undergraduates actually take, a philosophy class, yeah. where a bunch, of, a bunch of the questions have to do with, and the topics we're covering have to do with a lot of these questions. Usually the only philosophy class they'll take, because um, very few actually might major or minor in philosophy. Tell me about it. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, which, you know, is fine, but but we, we designed this course because it brings up big questions like these. Uh, what's called a, it's a course called Faith, Philosophy, and Science. And so um, often our students probably, I don't know, 60, 70% of them are Christian or come from a kind of pretty decently aware Christian background. So for some of them, these are the kinds of questions where they, like you say, they they would get tripped up or this is a naughty issue for them. Maybe when they haven't quite framed and thought through carefully. And maybe naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Although, depending on what tradition they come from, it can be naughty <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, true. Very good. Not off, <laughs> out of bounds, oh, little, oh, young Christian student. Mm-hmm. Don't be naughty. Totally. But yeah, so these are the things that they're kind of, if they're going to start thinking about it, this is where they're going to find the knots, basically. Yeah, totally. And and for a lot of our students, what we really want, whether they're Christians or, or not Christians, maybe kind of seeking, wondering about religion in general, 
we want them to kind of tackle these in college with us. I mean, because otherwise they will probably someday meet someone who has these serious kind of a lot of these very intellectual objections to especially Christianity, I think, but also a sort of organized religion and its sort of worldview in general. And if if we haven't helped them see like why why these questions matter and how are the answers you might give them connected to other questions that might you know pop up as a result, you can at least work out the way you feel your way around. So yeah, that's I mean I teach that class at three times a year usually, and it's a class that gets packed out to like forty students, and we we work through them, and we and I and I teach them, I, I point out to them like look, well, this is a setting where they. You guys are learning from each other because you're sitting alongside people who don't share the same religious convictions you might. Um, some of the people in the classroom will think these are just tough questions that can't be answered well by Christianity. And that's maybe part of why they don't want to be a Christian. Hmm. Yeah. So we, we think through these, yeah, with that in mind. That's cool. So it is kind of uh, – it, it's a unique environment and it's really on the ground. You know, In, in some <clears throat> sense, it's sad that they're so young because mm. – uh, I find a lot of these questions more interesting now in my 30s than I did in my late teens and early 20s. Yeah. But of course I share, you know, your what you're saying about let's talk about it now so that later you don't get surprised mm-hmm. by this and hit over the head with it. I mean, that's basically the whole point of this podcast and mm-hmm. uh, if I if I were if I had an exclusively younger audience, that would be the reason. You know, mm-hmm. of course, m- people of all different ages listen to this show, but it's the same kind of idea. This is a space where we can talk about it mm-hmm. and then you don't have to be like, "Oh, did Richard Dawkins just disprove 2000 years of Christianity? <laughs> I saw this debate, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Question one, starting the timer for 15 minutes, which okay. is what we're going to attempt to stick to for each of these. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, yeah. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? The first question here is obviously, what do we mean by hell? Right? Yeah. That's going to be part of it. I mean, the, the sort of background idea with the person posing this question, whether they are a Christian themselves or, or not, tends to be a very particular view of hell, right? It, it tends to think of hell as being a, a punishment that's inflicted on someone af- after their earthly lives in a kind of afterlife state. And one where it, the punishment is involves kind of suffering, like anguish, like it's rough, it's really bad. <laughs> it's the bad place, right? And so there's that, but also it invokes usually uh, a rather interminable, you know, endless, eternal state. One you can't get out of, one one that just will go on forever. And that sometimes ends up making the the question all the more poignant because it doesn't right. it doesn't feel to many people like God would if God's loving and God created us and loves us, at least at least loves us now or something, that's the way the teaching seems to go, then how could God do that? Yeah. Yeah, and and I think we tend to think of it. We we think of it as eternal conscious torment, right? So the yeah. that that phrasing is actually really good phrasing. It is eternal. It doesn't end, but it's also conscious. So it's not like, well, you're just in a state forever in air quotes where you're not with God. No, 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 no. We're you're conscious, and our experience of consciousness is always in time. We don't really. I don't. I think it's fair to say that human beings don't have a concept of consciousness that does not involve moment-to-moment experience. Mm-hmm. It's nonsensical, yep. at least given what we have now. That seems right. So it's moment-after-moment torment conscious. So that's the that's the popular view, in, at least in conservative American Christianity. Uh, and so that's the thing that people have the most problem with, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess, could you say a little bit about the problem that the conservative student has and the non-religious student? Is it the same problem? 
do you actually kind of notice differences there? So uh, a student coming from a more conservative background with, with certain presuppositions like, yeah, that's what hell would be, um, tends to think first that this is very well supported based on part, some passages in the Bible, and that's questionable in itself. But um, then they also tend to think that that's this is not really, you can't finesse this or soften this or that that would uh, change the point of the of the issue where, where if you if you weaken, I guess, or you, you, you soften any of those bits, the eternal bit or the conscious bit or the torment bit, that somehow that's not what the real doctrine requires. Whereas, you know, students coming from a different side, even if they're not religious, they might be able to be more open to the idea that like, actually any notions of damnation or, or, or punishment that we find in the Christian tradition, maybe they're not that narrowly sort of defined with these three really important parameters of eternality, consciousness, torment or suffering yeah. as part of it. Punishment, yeah. Because a lot of people will be much more inclined to suppose that God could be both just and loving and not let everyone into a heavenly afterlife, but nevertheless punish in some other, by some other means. Right. Um, what, now, there are different ways to draw out how that could be, but, you know... It's, yeah, that's, it's like, I mean, you, it just makes me think of, like, basically pre-modern, pre, pre-Christian notions of the afterlife. I mean, there's all kinds and all kinds of religious traditions in, like, classic Judaism and, you know, Greek thought and Egyptian thought, right? Mm-hmm. There's... There's various kinds of punishment and there's like kind of a something shadowy that comes next, but it isn't, it's not ratcheted up in the Dante way, right? Of yeah. like boils and, you know, you're lying in excrement, crying out in agony. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really get turned up to 11 as it were yeah. until a particular understanding of Christianity. Yeah. And in, I mean, in our classes, we don't normally dig into the sort of background to where this ratcheting up motif comes from. But you get you get it in Dante and, and others, and and it's it's interesting to see that it's it's quite tied to a certain kind of style of evangelism and apologetics. It's kind of like taking a lot of liberties with what what the biblical tradition in just the texts themselves seem to indicate that that end state might be like, or, or that after state end state makes it sound again like it's that's it, then there's no more. <laughs> but you know, if you just read you know say the Gospels or the New Testament. Um, and even then you compare them to the elements in the Hebrew scriptures where you, you get kind of this talk of Sheol or some bad sort of rough place, less ideal place. You don't get anything like this very precise eternal conscious torment thing that then in, in not only in our own popular culture, but reaching back long, long centuries with literature and so on, where they're, they're really thinking about this carefully. And the, part of the reason they're thinking about it is uh, this comes in at a time or gets more popularized at a time when... Issues of religious tolerance are brought to bear. Questions about conformity: What do we do and say to people who aren't going to, you know, be a part of the, you know, Christian church that's so widely embraced in our particular nation states' way of doing things? You know, thinking back hundreds of years, even these issues creep in in part for kind of what you might think of as sociopolitical reasons as well. Which is interesting because I would argue, with no evidence to back it up. Uh, but still that like the reason that hell has popped back up again, uh, in sort of modern American conservative and post conservative discourse is the, the idea of like pluralism. It's like living the, the fact of pluralism in the Western, in Western society. Mm-hmm. Where, sorry, I, what do you mean by pluralism? M- uh, meaning Professor, I have, define yeah, it for me. <laughs> thank you. Meaning I've got Muslim students in my school. 
Mm-hmm. I've got Hindu students whose parents moved from India in my mm-hmm. school or mm-hmm. whatever. And and we just because of the internet and because of especially if you live in an urban area, you've just got racial diversity and religious diversity. Uh, and then even if you don't have it nearby, it's on TV, it's on the internet. I mean, you can you see it if you're mm-hmm. interested in this kind of stuff. It takes five minutes on Wikipedia yeah. to go. Oh my gosh, there are billions of people who believe other things, mm-hmm. and so it, there is a pressure there with globalism and the information age that kind yeah. of mirrors the pressure of the Holy Roman Empire expanding, for instance, mm-hmm. into Muslim territory or. Or you know the, the Germanic European people, yeah, the religious the, wars, yeah. yeah, the religious wars, especially post Protestant, yeah, pagans religion. in the UK and in you know, paganism in, in the UK and Ger- Germanic Europe, you know, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's actually that's weird. There's a there's a rhyming there, kind of that I find yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. So when, I mean, when we do it in my class, um, other other authors actually talk about this in similar ways. One of the first things to point out. I think for someone who's biblically literate enough to have a sense of like, well, there's this talk in some passages about this very stark, stark, bad, eternal sounding place um, that really there's like only three passages and two of them come in late Matthew if I'm, or in Matthew somewhere. Um, and another, I think in one of Pauline letters well, that use this Greek word uh, for eternal that gets translated into English, eternal is Greek word Ionion or Ionios, which um, is a rather tricky word to, like, if you do a little bit of, you know, study about the Greek language and these words and how it comes, these word, this word comes up in other contexts, it doesn't have anything like this um, kind of, at least in a lot of passages, this longevity, durationless, temporal notion of eternality. It has something more like a qualitative feature. And you get it a lot with life. You get Ionion or Ionios, life, eternal life. But even in a lot of those passages, it's not clear that what that like the idea is supposed to be. It's oh, it's a it's a, it's an unendingly long life or good thing. Then you also point out there are pl- other passages where you get this word using meaning to use something like age long or, or like a long time, but not endless. But not endless, right? <laughs> right? So the quantitative notion that feels like it comes up in the English version is not really in play in most of these biblical that's interesting text in their original languages uh, and yeah. the concepts they deploy. Yeah. It's also interesting to – it's obvious but interesting to note that the writers of the New Testament don't have Dante's work in mind. You know what I mean? Like they're not yeah. – Dante hasn't been born yet. And yeah. and their concept of whatever eternality is or ongoingness would just be an ancient Jewish concept. It wouldn't be a later Christian concept, at least not the writers at the time that they're writing it. Mm-hmm. Now, say what you will about how doctrine develops and you know, if you're Catholic or something, you're going to be more – you're going to have to be more committed to that. Yeah. But this brings up uh, something that I did want to talk about. Uh, one of the things we initially tried to get an uh, episode going on back when you were too busy was this mm. idea of hell. Mm. And you sent me a paper uh, that you have your students read in yep. this class. It's from the 70s. Uh, Marilyn Adams is the mm. name of the philosopher, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of about like this – the moral incoherence of this eternal conscious view. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, this is a paper she called – it's called Hell and the God of Justice – and she's pointing out that the punishment would be justified if it looks like this. And the hellish version of that is something like eternally long torment. And she goes to great lengths to point out that like the notion of justice we have in mind, a kind of equitable or appropriate bad doing to someone because they've done you know, something wrong or sinned or, or whatever the, right, the story is. In more general 
matters, when we think of punishments being just, there has to be a kind of proportionality to the sentence being yeah. given out, right? You, it's you, baked into our understanding of justice. Yeah. If I steal a loaf of bread and then you stab me through the heart with an ice pick, <laughs> right. that is disproportionate and not just. Right. In fact, it, it, it's unjust. It's the opposite of just. Right. Now, and someone might start to get a little bit worried here and say, well, wait a minute. Maybe we don't want to impose our own contemporary notions sure. of justice or concepts here. Maybe those are not. But uh, I mean, that might be at some level an important thing to consider. But I think we should also remind ourselves that among Christians who have at least read the Bible carefully, have worshipped and learned some of the doctrines, we're tutored by also the biblical texts in such a way that we learn also notions of justice from that and from this from the Christian tradition. So you wouldn't probably be able to make the case very easily that, you know, it's only our modern minds who are like, oh, punishment's got to be proportional and, and can't go too far. I mean, and to yeah. the extent that you are worried about that, there's a weird element we get also in Jesus' teachings a lot, which is like, well, uh, I can do what I want with my wage in the I was in the parable say of the, the yeah the parable of the, the workers the workers and in some the come to the last hour and they mm -hmm. get paid the same but that's not punishment that's reward no right but right. but notice that th there's this offense being taken by the by the people yeah, who work sure. the whole day yep um, and they're like this isn't this isn't fair they only you know the folks who came at the end only worked for an hour or whatever. And the response, right, is supposed to be from the vineyard owner or sort of, I guess, God, the father. What are you, like, jealous because I'm generous, I'm right. graceful? Well, okay, so there, there's a level at which we might say the teachings of Christianity include things like overcoming or, 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 or overlooking It's not what's strictly one-to-one -one deserving, that's true. Exactly, right. But if it's going to err one direction, doesn't seem to err the direction of, it's not one to one, and it's going to be a lot more punishment. It's going to be worse. It's, yeah, you would... <laughs> it's not one to one, and it's good, and it's generous, right? Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, so David Bentley Hart, the theologian, has a sort of in in our world a very popular book that just came out that all yes. shall be saved, which I'll be discussing with Brad Jersak uh, soon on the show. But one of the one of the anecdotes that he has been sharing in interviews, and he shares it in the book as well, is there's a certain kind of Christian, and in, in, in his experience, in his circles, it's often a late convert, a later in life convert to either orthodoxy or Catholicism, who's like, hey, I put in the work here. I I did the work and found the true church. Mm. And if everyone else just gets in that didn't go through that work and wasn't, it just sounds exactly like the parable <laughs> of the workers in the field, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so there is a sense in which as Christians, we have to be careful of that kind of entitlement, you know, like, Ours is a God of radical grace and generosity, mm -hmm. and that is, yeah, you right. know, so, the, so there are, it's interesting. There are two sides to that fairness yeah. coin. And, the, and notice that fairness bit of it is, uh, is it fair for God to fail to or not give out a punishment that's deserved? Right. Where we have a kind of notion on or grip on what dessert amounts to here. But the worry with the hell question that we started with, and when you're thinking of it as eternal conscious torment, is more like really flipped the other way. Would it be just for a God to punish eternally or endlessly someone who, this is the way Marilyn Adams runs it in that paper. She's like, how could it be appropriate to punish for an infinitely long time someone who's only committed a finite amount of wrongdoing? And, you know, right there, we're already like, wait, yeah, there's something that wouldn't be totally cool. I mean, you can even put real qu kind of quantitative numbers on this. She says, you know, if you had someone who 
tormented or, or harmed or, or hurt people for 70 years. And maybe they, they hurt 10 people every day for 70 years. You know, you do the math, you get a number. Yeah. And then it looks like you'd want to say, well, then maybe that person could deserve being punished for that, that many days yeah. at that amount. But that's gonna, surely going to be far less than an infinitely long <laughs> yep. punishment. And, and what's interesting about Adams' approach, too, is she points out we have these, this notion of justice or fairness, which also shows us that there are some cases where equitable proportionality doesn't actually seem right either. So she uses an example of like, if I punch out... 32 different people's teeth, like I knock one of their teeth out, each of them, then, you know, the kind of eye for an eye, lex talionis idea that we get from, toothless. especially Exodus, right? Yeah. If yeah. each of them knocked out all of my teeth, because you, each of those 32, losing one, losing tooth. one tooth is far better than yeah. someone losing all their teeth, yeah. even if it feels like at some level, they, I guess, sort of deserve it. Yeah, interesting. And so, so even there, we have to be careful about just thinking our concepts of justness or desert are mapping perfectly onto some neat and tidy principle or something. Yeah, that's good. But it's time to move on. Oh, but we didn't even talk about anything else. Let no. me just point one thing okay. out because it I'll will matter a... for a later question. Okay, great. Point it out. I mean, this question sort of presupposes maybe God does punish people by sending them to some kind of bad state. And two responses you might have is, well, does God actually do that? Right. I mean, it should be an open question whether God does that, especially if the question is about an internal, eternally long one. Um, but also we might wonder, could it never be just? Uh, because maybe some people deserve something like a really harsh, long punishment. Maybe not an endlessly long one, but a, yeah. a long one. And the later, the later question about the problem of evil and suffering brings us back. Because when people have worries about the problem of evil and suffering, and they have worries about hell or whether God would, could condemn someone to hell, notice the response about hell feels like it's dealing with the worry about the problem of evil where people are, there are some people that might really, if there's going to be anyone who deserves to be in hell forever, you know, name one, you can, yeah. you can come up with a Hitler sure. or a Pol Stalin Pot or, whatever, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, anyway, this, these clearly the kinds of answers you give or the, the assumptions you bring to these questions, they interact with each other. Well, let's roll into, let's go straight into the problem of evil then. And we'll, we'll save, uh, religious okay. diversity sure. for later. Mm -hmm. So the problem of evil you know, good God and certain kinds of evil uh, that, you know, how can those coexist? I personally think that this is the strongest argument against theism, against the idea of yeah, a too. good and loving God. Mm -hmm. It's the one that I struggle with the most personally. I don't feel like I have a good answer for it. I've got some kind of ways of thinking about it that are better than ways I used to have of thinking about it, but that's, that's the progress. Yeah. Uh, basically, my faith persists in light of this very real problem. How do you first hear a student ask this? I think most often it's it's not an abstract question like how could God allow evil at all, uh, or, or or what 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 reasons might God have for allowing evil at all, or these kinds of evils, or this distribution on yeah, it's more just distribution. It's like yeah, it's more of a this thing happens. This thing happened to me, yeah. or someone or I, I care this, yeah. about, right. uh, or I lost someone dear yeah. to me, or. You know, you know, especially the the really tragic ones. Like um, we have a visceral reaction to someone someone dying very young, yep. or a, a parent dying before they could even get to know them very well. The one I'm dealing with right now uh, in grad school for psychology is learning about schizophrenia, mm. which is not chosen uh, and quite torturous, and then also learning 
that the prognosis for being able to live a healthy life increases with IQ and decreases with lower IQ. And IQ is also not something that's chosen. It, it changes over time, but mostly that's a result of like, you know, uh, health, nutrition, and like ample opportunities for learning, which yeah, you also don't yeah. choose your own access to. So there's just this really sad mm -hmm. distribution of outcomes mm -hmm. where people who already have schizophrenia and deal with that, and then they also are burdened with a low IQ mm -hmm. are like doomed in this kind of living hell in, in a sense in, in a, uh, in their own mind and just thinking, ah, that's rough. Yeah. Those people did not do anything to deserve this. And, and I can't believe it's the sins of their fathers or something because Jesus doesn't let me believe that. And so it's just this hard thing. These people just have a really rough existence, maybe yeah. not worthless, maybe still worth living and breathing and seeing color and eating food and, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to know what's worth it or not, but yeah. uh, I certainly want, wouldn't want them all to die. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that, that kind of evil, that kind of suffering yeah. is hard. It's hard to square with the God that I think I know. Yeah. No, notice, I mean, it's really important, I think, for uh, Christians and also people who are trying to think carefully about this, like philosophers or philosophy students, to make these distinctions. One is like not just evil, the way we often use that language, where it feels like that's loading up a moral or blame involving or responsibility involving notion like sometimes philosophers will call that moral evil like involves wrongdoings by somebody yeah even if we include also things like structural systems and they're unjust because some people have made systems. decisions over the years sure because that involves yeah. people's participation decisions sure. too but also just general suffering like of the kind that philosophers will sometimes call natural evil like the result yeah. of like awful weather events or yep. diseases or famine. And or... I would put certain kinds of mental illness that exactly. appear yeah. sort of, you know, kind of predetermined. Uh, yeah. And some of them have very bad prognoses and, and they're not chosen. And so that I would consider that natural evil, yeah. not really chosen moral evil. Yeah. yeah. So if the question is, how could a loving God permit or allow these, especially as much as we find, there, we should distinguish probably between different qu questions here. One is how could there be any evil at all if there's a God like that? And then also a different question maybe, which is the mounts and kinds that we find. Right. Yeah. How is that justifiable or how, how can God allow for that? And so um, when we tackle this, uh, we, we, you know, we go through a lot of reasons that are sometimes given. Sometimes these are called theodicies. It's like trying to find uh, yeah. possible reasons trying at least it, yeah. why God, and you can maybe get a little far by thinking through some of these. I mean, the most common sort of one for part, some of those evils will be the free will yeah. appeal, the free will defense, namely something about people misuse their freedom, but f God's given us freedom. God wants us to be free. Why? Well, you can tell us theological story about this, continuous with the Christian tradition that like, if you are to love other people and if you're to val have values, valuable relationships and care for other people, your choices have to matter and you have to be free in this strong sense of like, you're an agent that does stuff that mm -hmm. otherwise those things wouldn't happen that way. Yeah. So you could do otherwise. And when you do yeah. otherwise, there will be consequences yeah. and there will be pain and all that. Yeah. Right? And so your, your decisions really matter. And of yep. course, this is the way that the person who likes to invoke hell and push people in that way with yeah. that issue will, will invoke, look, here's why your choices matter. Your end state might depend on this. Yeah. But with suffering, right, the, there's a real question here about why would God allow this much? Right. I mean, especially because we're taught in the Christian tradition, God is a God of love. God values each individual. God doesn't want suffering. I mean, if you look to the person of Jesus in the gospels, you get a lot of scenarios where Jesus is healing people. 
you know, relieving them of their infirmities, making them, their life better in some really important way. If, if that's what Jesus is doing for people, that Jesus is divine or Jesus is part of the Trinitarian Godhead, then the question just comes back, like, why, why isn't God ending more of this suffering? And I think it's it's really it is the hard a hard kind of answer because there's not a perfect answer to this. You you can invoke certain reasons that might might kind of make you feel better. The best looking view I think we discuss and which philosophers have landed on has to do with the idea that some of these suffering and adversity that we face, even though it's inequitable and distributed kind of randomly, it looks like can make for conditions where we develop into the right kinds of people God wants us to be. So kind of soul building theodicy. It's made developed by John Hick, but you can think of it as a character building thing. Like all these virtues that we prize that the Christian tradition as well prizes like patience and hope and love and self-sacrifice and courage and so on. It's hard to understand how you could develop those if you lived in a world where there weren't bad things happening. Right. Or, or where even if they weren't bad things happening to you, they're happening to others. And so that motivates you to help and care for those who do need. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so there's something to be said for like, well, maybe it's maybe it's not that God disvalues suffering in general. And so God should have tried to eliminate it. That's the, often the way that philosophers of religion will talk through this topic. Well, God can eliminate all the suffering because God's omnipotent, but God is all powerful. Right. And God knows there's suffering because God's omniscient and knows everything there is. Uh, and God's, you know, cares enough because God's loving. Well, how, why is that, right? This is the nutshell of the problem. But, I mean, I think in the Christian tradition especially, we see God, like, not often trying to just wipe out suffering, but rather be with us in suffering and have those have those conditions lead us not only to closer relations or uh, connections with God, but with e- with each other. And that really, it's not that God wants to mitigate and change those for the better for every single individual, even in their own lives, but that God's willing to work in the midst of that with us and expect us also to work hard on it. I think when you start telling that story, it doesn't give you a full-blown rationale or answer, but it makes the the worry feel a lot less pressing. I think that's probably the direction that I go, Uh, but then I still get tripped up by some of these cases of what... Um, you know, can be called gratuitous evils, mm, uh-huh. which are pl- cases where that there doesn't seem to be any sort of like in this individual case redemption like that. And perhaps we might say the IQ 60 schizophrenic, right? So uh, there's not a whole lot of cooperating with God's greater purposes that that person is going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. They are like living in a prison of their own mind, populated with voices and, and hallucinations that aren't there and they can't think their way out of it. Yeah. And what that will lead some theologians to do is to revise their view of God, to Mm. basically say, look, it would appear that God uh, is not, in fact, sort of all-powerful. Perhaps Mm -hmm. God is almighty. This is language that, like, Tom Ward and and other sort of open relational theists would use and and some process theologians would use. Mm -hmm. People kind of in this world of, well, let's talk about – let's reconceptualize what we think God is like. Um, and I, you know, thus far in my life, I find that to be a good step for the moment anyway, because it seems to take more seriously the evidence of this actual world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I basically am convinced personally that there are gratuitous evils. There are evils that like, there is just no way. The, so there, there's two ways to make sense of it. Either in some weird economy that includes this life and the next life, uh, people are sort of earning something 
with their suffering here that they'll get then. Mm. I hope that's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that would be a just thing for God to do, Mm -hmm. but I have really no access to that. I mean, I could just say it. Hopefully that happens. Yeah. Yeah. The other option would be to go, okay, so still something like that, but a more robust accounting in the moment is that God's not like God is actually not in the business of preventing these kinds of things. And there's probably some reason for that. And, my understanding of God should change accordingly. Mm. Any responses to any of that? I mean, that latter thing is feels a bit like what I was sort of gesturing at. That yeah. Like we we view our suffering with a certain kind of experiential valence, where we're like, it's bad. It's always bad. Mm. I don't want it. Like, and of course, we're actually not perfectly right about that. There are times where we might look back on our own lives and right. say, I went through something here and it was rough at the time. Sure. Turns out it, I was able to later see how that opened up something that needed to happen or needed to change in me. So even there, like we're not perfectly attuned to which which sorts of suffering are actually, all things considered, no good or gratuitous. Um, okay, but yeah. also I think we, we we the point is that we view suffering in a certain kind of way, maybe not perfectly consistently, but also we shouldn't suppose that God actually views it in the exact same way. We, you know, if we're parents, we might be like, oh, my job is to make sure my kid doesn't suffer and suffer needlessly, or I'd be a bad, you know, I'd be a bad parent if I just started letting them get hurt mm-hmm. all the time. I think there are nice elements of the analogy with like human parents and God as good father or something, yeah. but there are also limitations to it. I mean, it it doesn't seem right necessarily to say God's always in the business of making sure that people are much better off on the the dimensions we seem to care about now in our current culture, yeah. given our resources and so on. And the, of course, there are going to be other cultures and other scenarios for other individuals where, you know, their suffering is going to look very different than ours and their suffering would be better to alleviate had we, if we had all the power to do it. But of course, that's us again, looking at it through our sort of human experiential eyes. And God, God might think suffering has this value and it results in certain decisions or, 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 or certain reactions of ours or ways it hinders us from flourishing. But also in other cases, God can bring flourishing out of it, given what we do, what do as a result or in, in response to it, not only each individual in, in response to their own suffering, but how we respond to help others who are suffering. Yeah, and the cumulative good that might come from all that. Yeah, it's a kind of communal, a social right. uh, side of it as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one way we might tie this back to the hell question is say that the problem of evil is both a stronger problem, you know, for faith, um, but also not as dire as the eternal conscious hell problem. Could be, because. Yeah. It seems like we could just say, okay, God wouldn't do that, mm-hmm. you know, and that, it's sort of more easily solved. Mm-hmm. And and thankfully, we find there are other traditions, there are other sub-traditions within Christianity that don't posit something like an eternal conscious hell. Yeah. And then we might just go, oh, I'm going to lean into that. With the problem of evil, it's it's not as obvious what would be bad for God to do. It doesn't It doesn't violate our concepts of justice so flagrantly as eternal hell does. Mm. And so there, there's a blessing and a curse there. So yeah. it's, it seems to be, in one sense, not as damning of a problem, no, no pun intended, <laughs> yeah. not as damning of a problem as yeah. eternal hell, but then also not as easy to work around. Yeah. So it's, it, is, it leaves us in this middle space of going, wow, this is really a problem. There are some ways of thinking about it. 
I don't know how to solve it. Yeah. And I think actually a Christian should embrace at some level, but at some point that answer, because probably the most Christian answer to ultimately why did God allow this particular thing or this awful event or, or this kind of suffering, the, the most specific Christian answer is like, God doesn't really tell us. I mean, the biblical text that might be invoked here, especially maybe things like Job and others, it's like, no, God doesn't want us to know, or, or maybe we couldn't understand. And, and I think that's fascinating, right? Like, it's not that important, given the, given the revelatory tradition you're thinking that is housed in, like, the biblical texts, that we know a specific sort of story or theodicy about why God does. And it might be that for God, even God's self, that's not really foremost in God's mind, like, oh, here's why I'm allowing this thing to happen here. It might be something totally different. Um, yeah. And that, and that might make more sense if we sort of knew the end game, yeah. which is, you know, if you hold to the traditional Christian hope that there is something better coming where every tear is wiped away and there's sort of a different state of affairs yeah. after this state of affairs, then you can imagine, you can play the mystery card there within a framework that is at least rational saying, mm-hmm. look, we already believe there is something coming next. It seems plausible that that would contain the answer to this question here uh, because they would seem to be connected. Yeah. I will say something else too, that for some reason, this passage keeps popping up in my mind. It doesn't obviously tie to the problem of evil, but there's this really the, the gist of what Jesus is getting at in this Matthew five passage coming out of the Beatitudes um, is maybe a little bit of a different point, but I, for some reason it keeps resonating with me on this topic. There's a passage where he says, um, look, uh, you ought to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you uh, because your father, you know, he sends sun and rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Mm. And there's something interesting about that, which is like, if you thought that through, you'd be like, that's not the way God, you know, given our notions of justice, that's not the way God should should do it. God should send the rain on the righteous and the drought on the un- right. <laughs> on the unrighteous, yeah. right? And yet what we find, especially in the Gospels, is, is a certain view of what God is and does that defies our normal expectations about how, how God ought to or, or, or would best or something, given our understanding, handle or, or, or deal with this situation. And, it, you know, it looks like a weird problem of evil lurking notion. Yeah, it's just like there's say. rain. It's, you know, the, yep. the, the unrighteous person, it's, they're getting the rain on their crops. They're profiting from yeah. it. What's up, God? At the very least, Jesus of Nazareth seemed quite aware of the problem of evil. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and situated his teaching within an acknowledgement of the problem of evil mm-hmm. and, and the problem of basically <laughs> gains mm. and rewards not matching up to merit. Yes. Uh, a lack of a meritocracy in the yeah. actual Which world. is a kind of sense of like, well, why, why would God do that this way? There's the mm. same sort of question behind the problem yeah. of evil. Why would God allow right. or, or, or not prevent, you know, yeah, not rid the world of these various suff- amounts so, of suffering. But in that sense, we might, we might want to claim that uh, <laughs> the Christ-like thing to do with the problem of evil is accept it and like, worship God anyway, or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Respond as we can, Respond to, as we can. to alleviate to suffering alleviate, yeah, as right. we can, or, or, or help those in need as best we can. But yeah, well, yeah. that's about as hopeful as an end as we're going to get on the question of the problem of evil. Probably, so yeah. that seems like a good place. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will address the question, why is there so much religious diversity if one religion is true or the most true?
As I mentioned in the intro, this is one of five episodes that are airing every other week while I spend some much-needed time with the newest addition to our family. And so, consequently, I can't put a Patreon ad here that has the most recent conversation because I don't know what that's going to be yet. I'm recording these earlier. So instead, uh, it's now January when I'm when I'm uh, recording this, and I'm going to give you the most recent topics that came up on the patron-only Facebook group, as well as a couple highlights of recent patron-exclusive episode uh, topics. So on the Facebook group, we've got someone just found out that her dad, who is a licensed marriage family therapist, believes in conversion therapy for homosexuality. That is therapy where you try and get the gay out of you and is looking for sources that are conservative enough to show to her dad. We've got an article with Mark Galli, Galli, the, I'm not sure how to say it, the uh, Christianity Today editor who posted the big um, anti-Trump thing that had everybody riled up, an interview he did with Chris Hayes. Um, Let's see, what else is on here? We have someone asking about a particular denomination, if anybody has experience in that denomination and what they think, because I believe this person is Consider try, considering trying out that church. And then uh, fourth, we've got um, people are responding to something that came up in one of the patron episodes, C.S. Lewis's Lord Liar Lunatic argument about the words of Jesus. Uh, and we have a, a lively discussion there about what's up with that argument, why it works, doesn't work. And uh, that's actually from a recent patron episode where I went through an MXPX song from my high school days that I woke up one morning and realized pretty perfectly encapsulated my high school faith. Uh, So that's a a recent patron-exclusive episode. I spoke with Hunter Threadgill, an emotion researcher, uh, why he thinks that's important and how that ties into faith. I've got an upcoming one, uh, upcoming at the moment I'm recording this. It will be out by the time this episode comes out, about um, I don't believe in that God, speaking with uh, an acquaintance of mine who's an atheist and figuring out how and where we actually disagree about God, and and I'm wondering if maybe not as much as we thought. And just off the top of my head, uh, there's conversations about what counts as Christian orthodoxy and why does it matter. There's conversations about teaching and making content in conservative Christian communities and, and institutions as opposed to more liberal ones. I've got a couple episodes uh, that go into David Bazan songs the uh, famous ex-evangelical songwriter, um, song by song. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff you find in the Patreon community. If you'd like to sign up, it starts at $5 a month, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. And there are also scholarships. So you can email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com if you really cannot spring five bucks a month right now we can get you sorted out. Okay, this is going to repeat for five episodes in a row. I apologize. Feel free to skip it once you've heard it once. Back to the episode. We mentioned religious diversity earlier. Uh, In the context of maybe it's a motivator for why people are asking the question about hell. Because as you were saying, sort of historically... These questions seem to come up in a time when people are rubbing shoulders with people of other faiths, whether that's because of the empire or because of the information age. 
And so it's not a surprise to me that this is in the top five questions that, that students ask. Mm -hmm. You know, if one religion is true or is the most true, the softer version of it, like why isn't everybody just that religion? Why do we have five to eight major world religions depending on what you count and then innumerable folk religions and atheism and paganism and, you know, all this stuff. So yeah. I don't know. How do, how do you – how does this question tend to rear its its head in class? Yeah. Our own students, I think, might be coming at this a little from a little bit different angle than earlier generations, like when we, you and me were in school. Yeah, interesting. Like I think they're a little more comfortable with there being lots of diversity of any of lots of different kinds, but especially religious diversity. And there, I think the the way I've phrased this question is much more of a kind of descriptive sort of question about like why would there be this much religious diversity if let's say Christianity is most true and that's like the sort of preferred or paradigmatic, the most important re revealed religion. The Some of what I'm driving at here comes more from the way professional philosophers are working on this question about religious disagreement and diversity and what, what, what to say about how to think about your religious own religious views or, or whatever your views, even if you're like an atheist if the the question of such disagreement and diversity makes it somehow less rational for you to keep your own views yeah that's the kind of pressure it seems like yeah. it adds to 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 you to re reconsider or or at least think about what else is out there i think that's fascinating yeah here's how i would maybe frame that let's say you wake up at 19 you're in your class and all of a sudden you're faced with this question somebody says it you're like oh, i've never thought about that before there are two different ways you might viscerally – there's probably more. But there's at least two ways you might viscerally react to that. One of them is the way that I reacted in my own autobiography, which is, oh, that's a threat. If there are other ways and I don't know which one is true, yeah. then this is a problem. I could be getting this wrong and then if I follow that train of thought and then there might be hell to pay, yes. what is God going to be displeased with me? There's another way you might hear it. I mean I can like not imagine feeling this way, but I can – it's conceivable that you might go, oh, this beautiful, uh, diverse world that God created that we live in. Maybe there's like these other ways of also interacting with that beautiful God or whatever. Mm -hmm. Certainly not the way that I yeah. <laughs> initially thought of it. Do, yeah. you, do you see – do you get both from various students? My sense is that students are a little more on that second side, in, at least in the sense that they're like – they're not too – you know, students and, and, and young – Young people nowadays are a little less like dogmatic about their own views and a little more like comfortable with the pluralistic environment and the global environment you you referred to earlier, right? They're just it's it's their natural environment, right? Um, and so wow. so most of them tend <laughs> tend to be less less like my view, you know, my views are obviously right and your views obviously wrong, and it's they're more coming they're a little more often coming from like, well, I don't know how to think these through. Uh, but I'm much more comfortable than maybe other people have been with like, yeah. you know, I've got my Muslim students sitting in the class with me, but I'm a Christian. What, yeah. Well, I don't I guess I don't necessarily need to be like, oh, you need to be a Christian kind of have that perspective on it. But you know, what's so funny is now I'm now I'm repeating what I was taught growing up. The now I'm hearing you say that and I go, oh, well, that must be evidence that uh, we're turning into a more godless nation because <laughs> people aren't standing up for truth. I mean, well, there's sure. all this that... stuff baked in. It's a it's a whole way of seeing things yeah. that was repeated ad nauseum to me growing up and that I, of course, don't agree with that anymore. But it is so hard to get away from those visceral reactions. 
I'm, I'm actually really excited and interested to hear you say that your view of this next generation, you know, your students are about 15-ish years younger than me and about 20 years younger than you. Mm-hmm. That makes me stoked, mm-hmm. frankly, that maybe that could become more normal because I don't think – uh, the the way I was given was really a, a good way to, to yeah. set things off. Well, I think probably the way you were talked to about it, and at some level also myself when I came was coming of age, was that this kind of question about which is right and wrong, which which religion is most right and wrong, and was come was brought to as you say with stakes involved. If especially if you're thinking that there's a hell on offer for those who don't believe the right things, now it's a big problem. But but then that also that kind of view thinks there's an exclusivist picture here. You got to be doing certain things right with your religious beliefs or practices, or maybe also your ways of living. There's like salvation issues in play, basically. Yeah, and, right. And but but I think they're more open to the idea that not necessarily only Christians or someone who professes faith in Christ or, or something like that is the only way to be saved. Or yeah, something. yeah. So I think a lot of it turns on what you're thinking salvation requires. Of course. Um, and, and, and sometimes that also plays into what your picture about religious truth amounts to. You can get a view that says, no, there's still only one religion is most true. But the issues of salvation don't turn on practicing that religion or embracing it or endorsing it or knowing right. about it, right? And that's a more, to use a certain kind of technical term, inclusivist picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even further than that will be a more pluralist picture, which says, no, like there's no such thing as like the most true religion. They're all at some level, ultimately kind of getting at the truth, but only in a fragmented, vague way. But all those religions are a means of salvation. That pluralist view is not a very Christian one, typically, but is one that I think a lot more of our students are familiar with the ideas yeah. in play. And they're just more often anyway, willing to let live someone who's got a different worldview. But I think that kind of picture gets strained a little bit when you think about if you're if you're going to be a Christian about this, what do you say about, is there something unique about Christ and Christ's right. atoning work? Like you probably have to say, yeah, that's that's like the mechanism for how people are saved from their sins. Like if Christ doesn't die on the cross to somehow atone for our sins... Uh, then everyone's in a bad way, or or, or God, God's not doing the relevant thing God needs mm. to do. Uh, however, you fill out the, yeah. the, the the doctrine of atonement, but that's still inclusivist in the sense that, like you're saying, there's this one true one. Christianity right. is some level really important for you know, God, what God is, how God's working in the world. Um, yeah, it's a different question whether someone who's never known learned anything about that or believed anything about that whether they also could be saved. So can can a Buddhist that's raised in India? Uh, be saved like right you so know? W- one way that you might distinguish between inclusivism and the the more pluralistic view at least in terms of the atonement is something i've talked about with uh keith ward the theologian mm-hmm. um and i think this came up on actually the aliens episode like episode three or something of the <laughs> show uh from much earlier in the year uh that you can either think of the atonement as like doing something so mm-hmm. there was some actual separation that exists in some way and then the atonement undoes the separation yeah or you can think of the atonement broadly speaking as more revealing god's character Mm -hmm. so it took christ's death and resurrection for us to get into our heads what god is actually like at least those of us in the judeo-christian tradition or what became the judeo-christian tradition the jewish tradition at first and so if you are going to be in this sense inclusivist you might say no the atonement does something 
it just does something for more than just Christians, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever Christ did. That is how other people get saved that aren't Christians. Yeah. And the more pluralist view, which is frankly the way that I have been leaning in the past few years, is no, like we, nothing needed to happen for us to be in God's presence. But what the Christian story of atonement and what Jesus does actually show us mm-hmm. is a true thing about God, mm-hmm. such that God is like this. And mm-hmm. if God is like this, then that's the kind of God that would not damn people of other religious traditions. Yeah, but also then that pluralistic take on on the even the atonement doctrine is compatible, right, with there being other religions in which exactly. God is revealing in a certain culture, yeah. a certain time, in a right. certain language. A different, a different way of thinking about what God does for us and who or who yeah. God is, uh, and that yeah. w- that we need, that we need to learn it. And if we're part of that culture and moment and time, the ways in which that gets communicated is rather different. Now yeah. that will help one work out some of the issues. I don't think it's going to do everything, because there are some you know non-theistic religions, some elements that you find in Hinduism and Buddhism where there's just no real story like that where like there's a right. being which uh is this way and which in some level cares about us to to show us sure. that god you know the being's true well, nature it, it and, won't and get that... you it won't get you all the way to saying and we believe the same thing that buddhists believe or hindus believe about god or ultimate reality um but yeah. you you it doesn't give you like a syncretization a combination of all of the views that lines up but it gives you a Christian way of understanding yes. in, within Christian theology how how Christianity could be genuinely revealing about God and also not condemning of people of other faiths. But I think that that way of framing it just now is is more like a way of thinking about Christianity in inclusivist terms than in the pluralist terms. Mm, okay, because it's still making room for like God is this way, and the way in which Christianity talks about God is truth apt is you know pretty pretty accurate or whatever and so if the ultimate reality consists of a, a personal being right yeah right, yeah then then the non-theistic parts of certain branches of buddhism and hinduism that are like oh you know there's no being there's no like personal being that created everything there's rather like for example there are these meditative states you can yeah. reach enlightenment or you can reach nirvana or you you will be changed yeah transformed by these practices but there's no like an ontology a, a view about what there is and that there's a being that's out there right that sure it's, it's just so to the extent that it's trying to be pluralistic and say these are all routes to god or to salvation it's like that's not really in play the yeah. view you you've because it is a christian oriented view the one you're painting i think is a little more inclusivist yeah. in its structure than pluralist in the way that hick and others who want to go pluralist, yeah, maybe Ward. I forget exactly what Ward. Yeah, he's, he's pluralist. Wanting he to would go say for. he's pluralist. Yeah, right. yeah. I so I yeah I need to think about it more. Um, my intuition is that the way that I might further that picture to a more <clears throat> more pluralist is to talk about the limits of language, the limits of sort of concepts about God. Yes, and if you think that there are some inherent limitations to like what we can even contain within our the neural networks that are our brains and our language systems and our minds, mm-hmm. that those are just going to be limited to such a degree that um, it's not so – like it's – the way I think about it is more – it's not so much that I know how God interacts with people of other faiths at all. 
uh, it's more like, well, of course I have to think of it in Christian terms because I'm mm-hmm. a Christian mm-hmm. um, and I have experienced God within the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. And it's more like I just don't have access to mm-hmm. what it would be like to have an experience of God as a Buddhist monk yep. or something. And so what I imagine if I'm taking the difference of our experience seriously is that I really can't say much about that. And so that's why I want to say something more like pluralism uh, just because more like it's more a pluralism of human religious experience than mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. a, maybe a theological pluralism or something like that. Sure. But um, it's a way of validating or, or being like, yes, yeah. there's something kind of right or, or, or something yeah. we should even deem religious yeah. or, or somehow hitting the transcendent right. reality that's going to say that they're, they're still onto something. This is an important feature, I think, of the right the right way to respond to this very question, though, which is mm-hmm. like, well, why would there be if they, even if there's one most true way of talking? Why about is the re- there ultimate reality? Yeah, I mean, the one that defers to the realities of cultures and languages and historical periods to say God's if God's working through these means because we need to understand the way things are given our situatedness in our cultures and our languages and the concepts that those make available to us to understand the way things are. Then of course we should expect actually that God moves in ways that aren't just like everyone believing say Christianity or something, right? but that God, God works through people. And even revelation is supposed to be the sort of thing, which uh, if you reach beyond the Christian tradition, you're like, God reveals things in, to people. They experience God they write, you know, then they write things down. <laughs> that's that's kind of right. how we get texts that become sacred texts, yep. right? But those are products of human experiences, human cultural exchanges and interpretations. And so once you make room for that, you're already far away from the, the parameters which motivate a kind of exclusivist picture that seems like neither of us are that into, right? right. Where the, the classic kind of evangelical one is like, no, you got to believe these exact things. They have to do with Jesus, Otherwise, you're not saved. Like, well, right. mm, maybe not. And, yeah. and and really, there are elements of even the biblical tradition that suggest that's not right either. Oh, there's I mean, plenty. Paul, Episode, Paul and yeah. other people are like talking about how Jews can be saved because Christians are yeah. grafted into them. And yep. like, right. Episode one of You Have Permission. And you have permission to believe some non-Christians are saved. That's, yeah. And that interview took place on this campus. Nice. Yeah. With whom was With, that? With uh, Rick Steele. Rick Steele, yeah. So moving on to our next question. Uh, I guess we didn't. We talked about students a little bit with that one, but we mostly just we just wrapped on the issue of pluralism. Why isn't there stronger evidence for God's existence? Now, this one is really interesting to me. I I kind of wonder what you mean by it. Slash, what? How is that actually phrased? Is it about space? Is it about you know evidence for theism? Is it about evidence for Christianity? Is it about evidence for the resurrection? Like, what kind of evidence do you find the students? What are they actually talking about? They are, I mean, in of course with me, it's normally like an expanded notion of what evidence amounts to, where we're, we're including things like, oh, here's some argument, philosophical arguments yeah. count as evidence in a way. And so we, we start to broaden our perspective on like, what kinds of reasons could one give to think that there's a God? Also, of course, we're also thinking about what reasons are there against maybe, or somehow weigh as evidence against the existence of God. I think our students typically actually come at this question without thinking about it in those terms yet. But once once we start putting these labels on it, the most natural way to think about it is why why is there all this mixed evidence, or why why is there like 
Why are there arguments on both sides? Yes. Why does it seem appealing to suppose that these arguments, say from the problem of evil and suffering, look like they weigh heavily against? If the, if there really is a God, like why? Sh- you know, this is a way of putting the problem of evil again, right? But but also this Always very comes back to the problem. So sometimes, yeah. 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 Uh, but but also the question of religious diversity could sometimes be phrased in terms of like why why is there so much disagreement or or yeah. different views and in that sense the evidence being mixed um, and not to get too far ahead of ourselves but I also think this will apply to our final question about different ways of interpreting the Bible mm. like why is there such a variety of interpretations of the Bible so even within Christianity then without and the, you know. There's just like, why isn't it clearer would be a, yes. maybe a one way of summing up a lot of, of these questions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that we sometimes help the students to talk about this is to hand them like oh, a few ways of thinking about it, which at some level might mask some of the real questions that might've come out on their own. But when we think about this, it's often like there's a, if there's not that strong of evidence such that we find lots of people maybe not believing there's a God, that's a way in which we can talk about God being hidden. Like it's, yeah. I mean, there's a classic now kind of argument from divine hiddenness. It's run by especially John Schellenberg, but his way of running it ends up saying, look, there are lots of people who don't believe there's a God. Partly seems like, cause the evidence isn't that clear, but we should expect rather that if there's a loving God that wants also to relate to us and, and for us to believe that there's a God, we wouldn't expect the evidence to look like that. We'd expect it to be much clearer, much starker. Mm, yeah. Um, and we, we'd expect there to be maybe not so much diversity. Maybe you'd, maybe you had like diversity of a minimal sort where you had like a bunch of theists or Christians or something. And then a bunch of non, like not, people who haven't decided that, that that's right. But then why are all these other options too? Right? It's like the diversity brings, brings back an issue as well. Mm, yeah. Is it, like, it feels like everything is really mixed up and not that clear cut. And this question feels like, I mean, it's the kinds of that students might wonder about is like, is that, is that a real problem if like I expected really not to look like that? I think, as I say, because students are often coming at it much more comfortable with a globalized, diversified world, that this, this particular way of framing that question isn't that common. But it's, I think it's still right there where by the time they're done with a class with me, they're like, all these arguments in different directions, like, why does it have to get so hard? <laughs> And should, well, shouldn't there, if there's a God, like, shouldn't there be right answers to these where it's kind of easy to see them? I feel very in league with your students <laughs> in that particular way of framing it. And I think mm-hmm. that that has actually played a big role in the evolution of my own theology. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, basically I find, uh, I find it very serious to think about the mixed, the mixed evidence. I, I had a um, philosophy of religion professor at UW at University of Washington when I was finishing up my bachelor's and he's just like a good dude, not a religious guy, really understood sort of contemporary debates in, in philosophy of religion, mm-hmm. led some really great discussions about it. And he's just, I'm sitting there and I am, and he's not, but it's not like obvious that one of us really loves God and the other doesn't, or really loves truth and the other one doesn't. Yeah. It's just like, he's not convinced. And I am like convinced or I'm convinced in spite of these difficult arguments for other reasons. Yeah. And it's just – it's wide. The, the, the range of experience, the range of intuitions are so wide mm-hmm. amongst well – as far as we can tell, mm-hmm. well-meaning humans. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you can't tell if he's well-meaning, you know, if you think you know that he's not well-meaning and you know that you're well-meaning, <laughs> how do you know that? Right, right. I mean – 
the heart is deceitful. Right. Mm. And, and so, and not to mention, none of us think that we are below average in almost anything, <laughs> including our goodwill toward God. Yeah. I'm sure. So I'm really taken by this kind of framing of, of the issue. And, and it really, it has, for me, it's led to a lot more theological humility, mm-hmm. which I think is an, an appropriate response yeah, because yeah. Uh, I think it, it's just accurate. And so uh, it, for me, it's made me kind of, when I think of my faith, weigh the practice of my faith quite a bit more heavily mm-hmm. and then kind of weight the content of my doctrinal beliefs quite a bit less. Mm-hmm. That, that's that been sort of my reaction, I would say, over the last 10 years and kind of thinking about this. So your way of seeing the problem involves, I think, something like uh, like noticing dis- so disagreement between you and your professor or, or people that seem pretty competent at knowing the ins and outs of the arguments and the Arguably, and the he's much more competent than I was. So, right? so yeah. this version of there not being strong enough evidence falls out of like, there's, again, the disagreement, religious disagreement kind of question. This, mm-hmm. It feels like it foists uh, a demand for epistemological humility on yeah, you. Yeah, what can we actually know? And really even yeah. maybe so much humility that we should maybe not even believe various things. We should sort of maybe like just start suspending judgment and being agnostic about a whole bunch of these issues that I'm not thinking that's the right way to go, but I can see how the pressure feels like it's right there. Yeah. Or, or you, you commit to a tradition that includes a bunch of beliefs, even though you don't have the level of confidence about those beliefs that you might want to have. Yeah. Um, and then you emphasize the commitment mm-hmm. over the certainty in the beliefs. I think this is a kind of a common move yeah. for people who have done some deconstruction and seems reasonable to me. Yeah. But there's a different way of putting this question, right? Which is, suppose you are a Christian and you've examined a bunch of, say, uh, the, the, the texts in question. Maybe you've checked out some other religions. You've been like, suppose you're saying, I'll, I'll be a Christian for now, I'll commit, and I'll keep studying and learning. But you also maybe look at some philosophical arguments. You're like, you're satisfied in your view, but you still might wonder a version of this, which is like, why doesn't God show up to me in a vivid, strong religious yes, experience? Yeah, yeah. Like, why do I pray and and seek God? And it's like, I don't get much reply as it were. <laughs> like, that's a different way of put. like, why doesn't God show up in yeah. really obvious ways more often? This is even the, just within one's own life. This is the final 20 minutes or so of the episode on psychedelics and spiritual technologies right. that Sarah, uh, Sarah Lane Ritchie, the theologian, her personal struggle and what motivates a lot of her work sort of autobiographically is she really wants to believe in a personal God the way that many of her friends and fellow theologians, myself included, do experience God and do believe in God. And she's like, I, it hasn't happened for me. Yeah. I'm sitting here. I'm really trying. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. believe me when I say I'm I'm trying for it. Uh, and, and what that makes me think of besides just being feeling unfair Mm -hmm. is it also makes me think about just the variety of like human brains and human minds and like how we process information differently and experiences differently and phenomena differently. Uh, So there's, again, it's like, why isn't it simpler? Why isn't human experience more uniform if God is such and such a way? Mm -hmm. So it's, we're, it's interesting how a lot of these are kind of the same question, (laughs) right? Just phrased differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't, pretend to have like obviously great answers to this, but I think one of the things we think about when we tackle some of the questions like these, or a particular hiddenness one in our course anyway, is to point out that um, there's a certain, certain line within, I think, the Christian tradition, which invokes God's, God's nature being love, where if God loves us, you might think it'd be a bad thing for God to say, overwhelm us with God's presence mm-hmm. in such a way that then it would seem to require us to then give a, our allegiance and devotion and worship to God, where 
on the one hand, that might not be a very fair thing to do to certain people, um, but also might be counterproductive in some cases. If, if we're not ready to have, be overwhelmed by the obviousness of God's existence, especially given our different backgrounds, our, our different ways of sorting through our doubts and different things, it might not be that help. I mean, in one way, it might be helpful, a shortcut to the right answer or something. But it, it might be that there are very good reasons God has for not making the evidence all that clear or, or, or not showing up in religious experience in the way that would be confirming just because you're asking for it. Right. And, and there's, there's of course elements of, uh, especially, uh, the gospels that talk about like the import of like faith being like, you still commit and believe without seeing, right. It's like you, you, you respond in a sort of faithful manner, despite imperfect or subpar perspective that you, you wish you had better. Right. Yeah, I mean, it isn't in my own case. It's not hard for me to see that whole that part of the story as like me actually growing in faith. I mean, that's yeah. that's what it's felt like. Yeah. And in fact, what I used to do was not worry at all about experiencing God directly because I had all these knockdown arguments, <laughs> and I could just rest in those, and mm-hmm. I didn't need to bother with prayer. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. and so, th- and that changed for me, and uh, and prayer sort of. Total, transformed my faith to be more experiential. At the same time, it makes it even more painful to hear Sarah's story because mm-hmm. she wants that experience and she's tried and she's not getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I, if I'm honest, it makes me sometimes doubt the veracity of my own you know, prayer experiences and all of that because, you know, why aren't they universal? Why, are, why isn't this clearer? Why yeah. isn't it more consistent across human experience? That's a, a lifelong question maybe for me. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's definitely one for me to, to think about Theologically, what, what does God have a reason maybe for giving us such different experiences? Mm-hmm. Does that end up in the long game being beneficial in some way? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Notice that there's an element of this one that's also tinged with the does it does someone's salvation turn on this? Right, like if you thought in exclusivist terms, and especially you need to avoid an eternal hell and all this, then the problem becomes all the oh, more much worse. Yeah. Bad, you know, really stark. It, I'm, if I'm, you're like, I don't why have isn't that, God give yeah. enough evidence for himself or why doesn't, yes. why don't we all notice there's gotta be a being like this or why, why aren't yeah. there better arguments or something? Yeah. So let's uh, make sure we don't shortchange the final question and then okay. we'll do a couple minutes of kind final of questions. The hardest one, perhaps <laughs> it's the one that we <laughs> or can't the most open-ended. Yeah. The most open-ended. <laughs> and, and that question is um, what are the right ways to interpret the Bible? And as I said earlier, I think that this ties in because it's also kind of about pluralism, especially in a Protestant tradition. Why do people, why do different Christians disagree so much on this? Why are there so many interpretations on evolution, on homosexuality, on baptism, on divorce, on women preach, you know, mm-hmm. 50 yeah, uh, yeah. things, right? On uh, whatever. So how does this come about? Yeah, in, in the course of things at school. In our course, um, especially this one course, we we devote a few days or a couple of days at least to evolution and science and ways of interpreting the, especially the Genesis yeah. creation that's a narratives. Good way. That's right? a good way in because yeah. that's, I mean, evangelicals that come from a kind of fundamentalist heritage. That's the one of the biggest pitfalls. Also, one of the uh, right. biggest money money makers, arguably right. in and that so world. There, 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 Massive there's a whole ministries around it and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole res, there's a whole like let's keep this as our preferred way of thinking about this issue. Yeah. Um, 
And so, I mean, one of the things I help my students to see without telling them exactly how to interpret the Bible, but, but, but at least making room for a view they may not have yet seen with Genesis 1 and 2, at least, that when you start reading the Bible with very modern eyes, um, especially a text that feels like it's not really wanting that, that the interpretation doesn't really lend itself well to a, a modern perspective that's like looking for facts, looking for details, looking for his, historical sort of circumstances that line up with, say, you know, this is the order in which God created. Uh, even if we don't want to say it was a 24-hour day, which we, we probably shouldn't, right? We, we, we cannot easily square even, even what's going on in Genesis 1 with the ways in which the narrative looks like it's supposed to continue, as it were, in a different story in Genesis 2. Like the details don't line up. Um, there's this literalist tradition of being like, yeah, this is how you, you just read this in a literal way where a more symbolic approach better handles anyway, both the elements of the, the literary elements in those texts, as well as opens up room to allow for evolution to have happened to God to have worked by creating through evolution for the earth to be, you know, whatever, um, seven, eight, nine billion, whatever years old for the universe to be 14 billion years old or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. So, um, you, I think the the more general question students often ask is like, well, wh- when do we use this non-literal uh, way of reading? When, and when do we use the literal one? Yes. Like, how do we determine? Or I remember di- thinking, is it at Abraham or Noah? Like, my initial question was, where does this stop? And then I can go back to my old way of reading Genesis. Right. Like, at what chapter? Right. And I now realize, oh. <laughs> naive me, there was a lot more to come, mm. but I, I thought I could contain it right? maybe of like, okay, so, but then starting with Abraham, now we've got real people. Right. They really lived this long, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, you, you, I mean, I think to be a faithful Christian and given the way the tradition interprets these things, you have to, you have to draw a line somewhere. You can't, you can't say, no, no, we're not talking about a real person here. We're just going to learn the sort of liberal theological lessons about, oh, this is the way to be a moral, live a moral life. Jesus wasn't a real guy. And instead we just learn these these moral lessons or something from him. Yeah, no, no, I don't think that I would <laughs> – liberal theology includes quite a few more robust versions that's than true. Jesus didn't exist. No, I know. But yeah. but, but there, there's, there's a, there's a, a far, tendency – There's sort of far left yeah. – Yes, there's a tendency on some uh, – parts of the liberal tradition to be like, of course, let's just demythologize. None of these miracles happened. Let's just read it with, with a different interpretive lens. So we don't need anything to be historical. What's funny is I think that that just takes a particular view about miracles from post enlightenment. And then it's like a modern view. And then actually just puts that anachronistically onto the text. Whereas the writers did not have any problem with miracles. Right. They probably like in their mind that wasn't the point. Mm-hmm. They're like this. They're just describing this thing that happened that was unexpected. I mean, the resurrection is certainly unexpected to the gospel writers, but the fact that Jesus could heal people was not unexpected. There were right. tons of people who healed people that, and then we get focused on that. There yeah. were people. There were exorcists in that day. You know that that is not what they were focusing on. Yeah. And so for us to go, well, this is the problem, and we'll just reread it, <laughs> rewrite. We'll yeah. just rewrite it from that. Like no, no, no. Better yeah. to say. Oh, like how did they think about these things then? Mm-hmm. If we think about them differently, that's fine. But mm-hmm. let's be wise about yeah. enumerating those differences rather than just the Thomas, the Thomas Jefferson Bible being the kind of yeah. silliest example. Just take out all the miracles. Of course. And what's interesting about both that far left liberalizing of it and also the very fundamentalist approach, especially to say the Genesis narrative, yeah. is they're both taking a very modernist interpretive exactly. stance on certain texts and doing what the modern eyes, eyes that are reading want, want the text to be. And so 
what I think I help try to help students see is like these texts were written in a time and with a certain sort of cultural perspective where the text can, if you, if you do a little bit of study related to this, they can speak for themselves about what they're about. And part of that involves also paying attention to what the genre of the text yeah. is. Yeah. And, and we, we can't do this as easily in our modern context precisely because the Bible we get is this book, one book of 66, whatever books, many of which have extremely different genres and different background presuppositions. Some of which arguably and have multiple authors, even within of the course. book. I mean, yeah. and so, and so what, what, what's really weird is like, we've, we've approached this as if the Bible is just one thing that speaks univocally and it's not, I mean, even a little bit of meaning uh, with one voice, not Right. Not contradicting itself, like but also from as if one it, perspective. There's one message yeah, from it, and there's one truth it, yeah. or something. No, I mean, I mean, the fact that this is spanning the Jewish tradition and the emerging Christian tradition, which are, you know, is a reaction in some ways to have a particular flavor of that Jewish tradition yeah, in the first yeah. century, is is telling in itself. You should expect there to be a lot of different things going on. But it, once you realize too, like, okay, the Gospels are trying to be somewhat historical narratives in a way that parts of the Old Testament are but also parts are not. And other parts of the Old Testament scriptures are law. Other parts are wisdom literature and poetry, right? The letters in the New Testament of Paul and the other early church writers, they, they have different import. They're trying to do different things. If you read poetry, right, or prophetic texts, as if they're just going to be telling us like facts or something in a sort of historical vein, You'd be missing the point. It'd be a bit like, right, yeah. like picking up the newspaper today or going on your screen and reading the New York Times and trying to find poetic wisdom. I mean, if you're misunderstanding the genre you're reading, you're already starting yeah. off on the wrong foot. And I think students don't quite see that until they realize, oh, yeah, I already am doing this in different texts when I open the, yeah. the Bible. If I'm reading the Gospels, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm thinking in a different way than when I'm reading the Psalms, Right. When I'm reading Paul's very specific circumstantial teachings to a particular church, like in Ephesus or whatever, there's different things that inform why you interpret the way you ought to. It doesn't mean an interpretation comes easily, but it narrows down what you're thinking the text is trying to do at different stages. So I want there's a direction I'd like to go, but we don't have time for is. I mean, I think that the <laughs> you genre, do a long sh- another episode. Yeah, we can do the genre do thing. The genre thing is. Well, well taken. I think <clears throat> kind of obvious for people who have been paying attention to this stuff. Obviously, sure. not not necessarily all my students, students but of like, course yeah. not. I mean, listeners of this podcast. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm kind of curious and asking going forward is like less about the discrepancy between obviously we should do genres and they they weren't in their churches in some way. More like what is it doing for everybody in those groups to not read the Bible that way? Like, what is it? What system is it upholding to have it be the rule book mentality or the univocal single message of all of this? Like, I don't just mean like power structures and, you know, you know, pastors making a living more like the the certainty industry kind of thing, you know, Mm -hmm. like the, Mm -hmm. the simple narrative that gives people a a communal identity and that, and that sort of maintains a certain kind of religious group. Yeah. And, and this is like that yeah. bumper sticker where it's like 
the Bible says it, so I believe it. Yeah, and as that, if like that settles it. Yeah, that's the end of it, right? Yeah. And, so what and, is that doing for people? Like psychologically, what's it doing? What's it doing at a group cohesion level? Like that's kind of where I. Mm. That's a an area for future study, basically. That I'm really curious about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to ask you your one more question about this. Just your opinion. Why do you think there is such a diversity of interpretation of the Bible, even among people who acknowledge? For instance, there's different genres and, you know, smart interpreters of scripture, leaving sort of the far left and the far right out of the discussion. What do you think is going on there? Well, what what feels like probably the most accurate answer is going to depend on which issue we're talking about the divergences of interpretation about. Okay. I mean, like if you're thinking of uh, why do some people say you shouldn't have women being pastors or preachers? And and some are like, no, that's fine. Why not? What, what do you mean? Yeah. We have an understanding of Paul's text that should lead us to think, in fact, rather that's not what he would have thought should be the case for all the churches. Um, that's going to differ depending on, you know, for thinking of something else, a different kind of topic. I, I suppose one reason is this. Amongst non-Catholics and non-Orthodox Orthodoxy is very rather different, and I actually don't know much about it as I'd like. Yeah, me neither. But suppose you just take Protestants as a whole to the extent that that even makes sense versus Catholics. Well, Catholics have a kind of ordered set of teachings about how you think of what the text is teaching. Protestants don't. We 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 don't yeah. have an authoritative magisterium or, or 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 centuries of you know luminaries who give us the interpretations where we can struggle through and be like, okay, this is roughly where we should land. So, so in the Protestant landscape, of course, it's going to proliferate. Also, because during the time that Protestantism grows up is the same time when the modern world emerges and printing emerges and scholarship blows up on, especially thinking about the Bible and the- theology, but also all manner. Right. It's like the first of top, information of like disciplines, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the, the first, the yeah, the first globalization, and, yeah. as it were, uh, of thinking. Yeah. On, it's on, arguably what allows the Protestant Reformation to have the kind of force it has. Exactly. So there, there are certain kind of historical features of when this is happening that yep. lend even more so to a proliferation of different views, but also then the ways that the fighting gets fought out and kind of in some sense won or lost, mm. you get kind of people circling back to be like, well, what did these people we think of as important, you know, Luther or Calvin or Edwards or whoever, right? You start going back to personalities and then those people kind of set kind of in a new way, an authoritative stance for Protestants anyway. And then, so for someone who's going to be more mature than just looking at Protestant figures, you, know, you look more deeply historically and you're like, well, what does Aquinas say? What does, what does some of the other medieval theologians say? What does Augustine say? Is there a way to think through all those to find some uniformity? If you can find the uniformity amidst all the proliferations, you're, you're better off, obviously. I think that's a way of being true to the tradition in a big sort of quote, big scare quotes way of thinking about tradition. In that way, like the proliferation doesn't matter too much so long as we're able to navigate. You know, this is really a departure, and it feels like an unneeded departure from mm-hmm. what matters here. If you're going to read this text and really firm up on it the way certain evangelicals or fundamentalist sort of people wanting certainty want to read some text, you should be suspicious off the bat, mm. right? Yeah, I think I agree with all that. Not that you're not. I just, you yeah. know, one who's listening. Oh, yeah. I certainly am. Mm-hmm. I think most of our listeners are. I would also add that I think that Christian Smith, the sociologist, uh, in his book, The Bible Made Impossible, makes a strong argument that on most big issues on which Christians disagree, the Bible does not actually present 
a univocal picture. Mm-hmm. And so that's also an explanation for why there's disagreement is that the text, strictly speaking, presents alternate viewpoints at different points. Yeah. In in the narrative or different authors, mm-hmm. even Paul at different times, you know, mm-hmm. seems to actually – and if we think about it, that's normal in human experience. Not everything I have ever said is logically consistent with itself. Yeah. Right? Uh, that's where the thing I always say that when it comes down to inerrancy or infallibility or any of these sort of guarantees of the truthfulness of the Bible, they all hinge on some moment at which God makes sure that the contradictions are resolved in whatever the voice of the Bible is, you know, the ultimate meaning. And I just think there's no evidence for such a moment. Yeah. There never is a moment like that. And so we end up with a sacred text that disagrees with itself on stuff. Yeah. And And that's obviously the way God's okay with it being. We probably should have thought that from the beginning because the, those doing the canonizing of the, the texts decided when they could have, I mean, they weren't yeah, stupid. They could readers. have harmonized. Yeah, they could have harmonized or rewritten bits of the four gospels. They decided to put four rather different gospels all together next to each other. Right, and I think that's a kind of uh, as a, a piece of performance art. I guess you could say they were like Christians should be able to think like, as you said before, right, more humbly about are there exact right answers here? Should we should we even be thinking there are right answers we could discern here, or should we just look for the right themes, have those inform which doctrines really are central, which ones are negotiable and a product of certain church developments, right? Yeah. Then you look at it rather differently, right? Which is a a way, an important way, I think, to look at it. Well, Matt Benton, we are (laughs) out of time, unless you have any sort of final thoughts to encapsulate any of this. No, except... Let's do this again sometime. Okay, that's very fun. <laughs> On other questions or similar questions, yeah. In the outro, uh, I will have a link to that paper, Hell and God of Justice, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a link to your own faculty page if people just want to see your publications and whatnot. Sure. Um, thanks so much for your time, man. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks to Matt and thanks to Scott Sanjemi for editing my conversation with Matt. Become a patron, five bucks a month, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission to pod and click become a patron. And yeah, you can email me with anything, anything you want to say. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. See you guys next week or rather in two weeks because of this new baby related schedule. Thanks for putting up with that. Bye guys. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.